we are in, uh, an, I don't even know what week it is, but we started a series called Questions, and uh, we're continuing today in the book of John. If you have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 9, and we're going to look at an entire chapter in, uh, in the book of John on an important question that was asked of Jesus. You know, when my family and I moved here from Roseville, we had to get a U-Haul, and uh, I don't know about you, but like locations where you can rent U-Haul isn't like on the forefront of my mind. And so I had to go online and I had to research where the most, you know, local U-Haul rental place is because I'm thinking, does that, do those things even exist? And uh, lo and behold, I found one, went there, rented a U-Haul. It was shocking because I remember thinking to myself, I have no idea where to go to rent a U-Haul. And yet the place where the U-Haul rental facility was, was on a corner of a place I used to drive literally every single week. And I do not understand how I had missed it for so long. We lived there for four years and I'm thinking how in the world did I not see this and uh, then when we were driving here from Roseville because we moved uh, to Antioch from Roseville we're driving and along the way we're like hey there's a U-Haul rental place there's another one and I'm thinking where did these come from and I don't know about you but there's things that you don't recognize or you don't see until you need them you know what I'm talking about and uh, you, you kind of get that when you buy a new car. You're like, oh, I really love this car and this color. You don't see that very often. And then pretty soon it's like every other car you see is like, well, we're not getting that car anymore. There's, there's like a billion of them. But it's interesting how things can remain hidden in plain sight. Do you know what I'm talking about? Just, just right there, you see it, but you don't see it because you don't really need it. And so therefore you're not really thinking about it. It isn't until you have a need that you start seeing the things that previously you couldn't see. And that's what we see in this story about the question the disciples ask Jesus about a man born blind. At first glance, it looks as though it's all about a physical healing of a man born blind, enabling him to see. But in reality, when you get to the end of the story, it's not about that at all. It's about spiritual blindness, about the fact that Jesus is standing before these people right before their very physical eyes, and yet their spiritual eyes are completely blind. And they have no need for him, and that's why they can't see him. And so let's pray together, and we're going to jump right into John chapter 9. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have given us to breathe your air. God, we thank you for the mercy you've extended to us to allow us to gather in this place. And thank you, God, for the brothers and sisters we have collectively gathered in this place. It's so good to be able to hear one another sing. God, as Ephesians 5 says, we are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so, God, it's good to know that my brothers and sisters are addressing me with their faith through their singing. So, God, I pray that you are blessed today. I pray that you would encourage us, teach us the things we need to know. Father, what a joy it is to be able to stand here and proclaim your word, knowing that there are thousands and thousands of pastors who are doing the very thing this morning. And there are thousands and thousands of believers who are gathering joyfully to hear your word faithfully preached. So bless their gatherings as you bless ours, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do something a little different. We're going to read sections of this story, starting in verses 1 through 7. And then once we finish that, we'll go on and we'll read section by section. So I won't read everything all at once. But we pick it up in chapter 9, verse 1 of John. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The question that the disciples posed to Jesus is a very important one. One of the most important reasons why they ask it and the important reasons for why we should study it is because of the way Jesus answers it. His answer gives us three important truths about what's going on here that I'm going to lay out for us, um, one, two, and three. The disciples see this man born blind. They simply say in verse 2, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? Is it this man or his parents that he was born blind? So that's the question before us. What is the cause of this man's blindness? His sin or his parents? But Jesus answers, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus' answer gives us three important truths. And I think it's important for us to stop and, and look at these three things because they are very significant for how we view things like suffering and the work of God and our mission as a church and as individual Christians. Firstly is this. In Jesus' answer, we see that physical calamities and suffering in general isn't always a consequence of sin. We see that physical calamities and suffering in general are not always the product of sin. If you see that this man's blindness is asked, the, the disciples are asking, what, why, why was this happening? What, what caused this? Is it his sin or, or is it his parents' sin? And Jesus said it's neither of those things. In fact, what we see is that Jesus is teaching that there are some physical calamities. There are some elements of suffering which do not come to us because of our sin or because of a lack of faith. This is significant because there are some people that teach that your lack of physical health and the presence of any kind of suffering in your life is evidence that God is not pleased with you. Or they would teach something like this, that the reason why you suffer and the reason why you are not in physical health is because you lack faith. And so your lack of faith is causing this problem. Your lack of faith is why your cancer is not being healed. Your lack of faith is why you lost your job. Your lack of faith is why you got in the car accident. Your lack of faith is the the reason why you suffer the way you do. But according to this passage, Jesus says that's not always true. You can be a drunk driver and get into an accident, and it is your sin that caused that. Yes. But sometimes you can just be listening to the radio driving along and somebody hits you of no sin of your own, not because you lack faith, but because we live in a world that has fallen and broken. The Bible, as we saw last week, speaks against this very idea that if God truly loved us, we would never feel negative, we would never feel pain, we would never suffer. It's not true. 
Sometimes God loves us so much that he inflicts pain upon us because that's the only way he'll get our attention. As C.S. Lewis says, our suffering is a megaphone to a deaf world. It's the way God speaks to us, communicates to us. We see this in Hebrews 12 where God says that he disciplines the children whom he loves. He disciplines us. If you are a legitimate child of God and God is your father, then you will be disciplined by God. And some people will say, well, wait a minute. If God is truly a loving father and treats us like children, then the one thing that we know about God then is that he would never allow anything bad to happen to us. If God's a good father, he won't let us suffer. He won't let us experience pain because good dads help us avoid that. Well, you have a problem if you think like that, and the problem is the Bible. Romans 8 speaks against this. When you read here, the Apostle Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Normally when that verse is quoted, it ends right there. But there's more to the verse. And so we have to read it all the way through. And it says, provided which means to us there is a qualification here. There is something that we, need to exp- or we should expect to experience if the other stuff is true, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so not only is the evidence of your adoption as a child of God found in the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, but it's also found in the presence of suffering. That's just what the text says. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, where the author writes this, it was fitting that he, being God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, who is Jesus, obviously, perfect through suffering. In other words, the salvation that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf was perfected. It was brought to completion through suffering. And it was God the Father allowing God the Son to suffer. So when you pick up Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So I want you to notice something. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. If you are a Christian, it means you are following Christ. You seek to have Christ's life living in you. If Jesus learned obedience through suffering, then, let me ask you, church, what should you expect And how might God teach you obedience? Well, one of the ways he's going to do that is suffering. Suffering. And not only that, but you see the Apostle Paul. Part of what he was doing in his ministry was to strengthen and encourage disciples wherever he was traveling. Acts 14, verse 22. 
that Paul was traveling and he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That's awesome. Paul's just going church to church, just giving encouragement to the church. It's like me inviting a guest speaker to come. It's like, hey, I just want you to encourage Golden Hills. Just encourage them in the faith. Strengthen their souls. And, and the pastor comes and he preaches and he says, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to let you know that in order to get into the kingdom of God, you will suffer. You all will write me emails and ask me not to ever invite that man again. <laughs> what kind of encouragement is that? Well, it's, it's the Apostle Paul kind of encouragement. It's the Bible's kind of encouragement. It's a dose of reality. It's truth. Not all suffering and physical calamities are the product of sin. Our suffering and our hardships and our tribulations are not always the sign that we have hidden sin in our life or that we lack faith. Sometimes the presence of suffering, hardships, calamities, they are simply the evidence that one possesses genuine faith, not lack of faith. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Remember that? Blessed are you when you are persecuted, when people speak all kind of false things about you. Rejoice and be glad. And you're thinking, what? What are you talking about? Rejoice and be glad at the blessing of suffering? Yes. So that's number one. That's one thing Jesus teaches us. And I think this is a great encouragement to those of us who have family members who have suffered greatly physically. That we can take comfort in the fact that it is not your lack of faith or their lack of faith that this physical calamity has come upon them. We can pray and ask God to heal. But God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And sometimes the greatest healing that God can provide our loved ones is to let them die so that they can get rid of this misery and this suffering. And that's a great grace. Second thing that God teaches us is found in verse 4, where Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So what Jesus is saying is, I've been sent here to do work. And because of my work, there's work that we collectively as the church need to be doing. And we need to do it while it's day because night's coming when all that opportunity will end. Or in other words, we need to get busy working because the window of opportunity is beginning to close. So the question is, what is the work that he has in mind? Firstly, the work that Jesus was sent to accomplish and you're going to have to trust me on this because we don't have enough time to go through all the verses. But Jesus has verbally said that he came to save sinners. That Jesus came to rescue us from the wrath of God. How he came to do that was to live the sinless life that you and, all, you and I could not. That he was perfectly obedient to the law of God in every way. And not only that, but Jesus willingly and joyfully endured the cross to take upon himself the punishment that is rightly ours for our disobedience and sin and rebellion against God. And not only that, but Jesus then rose from the dead on the third day. And in so doing, he demonstrated and validated that all that he taught and preached and lived is true. Jesus has overcome the grave, which means Jesus has overcome the consequence for sin, which is death. 
Jesus is overcoming sin itself. One day Jesus is going to put an end to all pain and all suffering because the resurrection. One day you will die if you are a Christian here today, but you need not fear your death because even though you die, yet you will live. For if you die a death like his, you will also be raised with a resurrection like his. And we long for the day when Jesus will return in glory and triumphantly come and consummate his kingdom where there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. There will only be infinite joy ever increasing in the presence of God Almighty where God will reinstitute everything that he promised. He will be Lord of all and we will dwell with him in a new heavens and new earth. That is the gospel. And if we will trust that, repent and believe it, that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us from our sins and to deliver us from the wrath of God, we indeed will be saved. That's the work that Jesus came to do. But because of that work, there is work that you and I must do. What is that? Glad you asked. We'll start in John chapter 6. If you make a left-hand turn in your Bible, you'll find chapter 6 in the book of John, starting in verse 27. This comes on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus walks across the lake and ends up on the other side. And the crowd begins to gather around him. They're really pursuing Jesus. They really want to know what he's doing. And they're, they're following him. I find it interesting that in verse 26, Jesus actually says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. There are indeed people who, who pursue Jesus, not because of Jesus, but only what, for what Jesus can give them. I want a new marriage, so I guess I'll choose Jesus. I want, I want a better this or better that, so I guess I'll choose Jesus to get it. In verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus has done all the work that is necessary to save sinners from their sin and from the wrath of God. He's done it all. That's why on the cross, when he breathed his last, he says, it is finished. If Jesus has done all the work, what work is there left for you and I? None. For we are saved by grace, not by works. So what is our work then? Believe. All you have to do is believe. Believe what? That Jesus did it all. That's it. And if you believe that Jesus did what was necessary, good, you have eternal life. This <laughs> is so easy. Jesus, however, goes on to teach that we as Christians will do the work that Jesus has done, and yet he says something striking. If you go to John chapter 14, so if you're in John 6, you make a right-hand turn and make your way to John 14. If you're on your phone, your iPad, you've got to scroll. John 14, 11. Here Jesus teaches this. Believe me, he says. Believe me. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So there's something Jesus teaches here that there, Christians should expect to be doing the works that Jesus did. But Christians should also expect to do greater works than what Jesus did. What? What in the world is that? 
That sounds like blasphemy or that sounds exciting. And then what is the rationale Jesus gives for why we will be able to do the greater works than what he did? He says, because I am going to the Father. What is it about Jesus' departure that makes it so that we can do greater works than he did? Glad you asked again. John 16. When you get to verse 7, Jesus is teaching about the Holy Spirit and he says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away to the, to the Father. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it's advantageous for us that Jesus depart and go with the Father so that the Holy Spirit can come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, it is to our advantage. Advantage for what? <laughs> That's when you, in your Bible, you look up and you see chapter 15, verse 26, where Jesus teaches that when the Holy Spirit, the Helper, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The chief work of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the beauty of Christ. If in preaching or in worship, the beauty of Christ is not the primary thing that is happening, it's not of the Spirit. It's just entertainment. Verse 27. And you also, you also, disciples, Christians, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. What is the advantage? The advantage is you and I will be given the Holy Spirit through faith and repentance. In believing the gospel, God gives us the deposit of the Holy Spirit, preparing us, equipping us, empowering us with gifts and abilities so that we would be able to go and be witnesses to Christ. Therefore, the greater work that Jesus has in mind is this, not that you're going to be performing miracles where you are healing people of their blindness and the lame are able to walk, the greater work that Jesus has in mind is this. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit, sent to the nations, proclaiming the gospel, and through the proclamation of the gospel, a miracle will happen. Dead sinners in their sin and trespasses with no spiritual life will be raised to new life. That is amazing. And I fear in Christianity today, we flip-flop those. The supernatural rebirth through the gospel, we're like, eh, give me miracles. I want to see blind people see. But that's not the greater work. The greater work is when somebody hates God on a Sunday. And by Sunday afternoon, they love him. That's the greater work. So that's number two that we learned. Number three, verse five. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus teaches, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. In other words, as long as I'm here, 
I'm doing the things that I came here to do. And we see it in John chapter 1, this theme of Jesus being the light. And I just want to point out a couple things for us real quickly. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the light of the world, which means Jesus is the one who gives life to the world. The darkness is not overcoming. Darkness is the metaphoric image of death and sin. But the metaphoric image of life and righteousness is light. Light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. He is the one who is the righteous one. He is the one who has life itself. And now that Jesus has stepped into the world, the darkness scatters. Death scatters. Because one day, death will be no more. Because Jesus is risen. And death has been put to death through the life of Jesus. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am the life. Everyone who wants life comes to me to get it. So that's the third thing. So now we get to verse 6 and 7 where Jesus heals the man. He's just said all this theological truth. It's just mind-blowing. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Something we don't see in our English Bibles is very profound for me. In studying this passage, I came to see that the Greek word used for mud here is the same Greek word that the Greek Old Testament, which is the Bible that Jesus and the followers of Jesus would have used. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And the same word that is used of mud here in verse 6 is the same Greek word that they chose to use to translate the word that depicts when God formed Adam out of the dust. And what it's doing is calling to our minds the reality that what God did in the beginning of creation, informing a man in his image and then breathing life into him and he became a living being. So Jesus is depicting for all of us as he spits in this ground, he makes the mud and he anoints the man's eyes. It's like Jesus is saying, everything that the curse of sin has done to the world, I've come to reverse the curse. Where there is blindness, people will see. Where there are lame, they will walk. Those who are poor will have good news preached to them. And those who are dead will be made alive. 
In other words, what Jesus is doing is depicting for us the reality of the new creation. Jesus has inaugurated a new creation. He has brought a new creation into the world at his coming. So this healing is not fundamentally about sin, nor is it ultimately about this man getting his physical sight. What Jesus is trying to teach is this. The effects of sin are being overcome. There's coming a day where all of the havoc that sin has completely overwhelmed the created world with, one day it's all going to come untrue. And the evidence is the fact that Jesus is able to perform these miracles reversing the curse. Death is being swallowed up in life. Sin is being defeated by righteousness. And the new creation is broken in. Sin and death have met their match. But of course, they don't get that. The people involved in this story don't quite see all of that. They will at the end, and you and I will see it at the end. But in the meantime, there's going to be a trial. Jesus is going to be put on trial in abstentia. And that's a fancy way of saying he's not there for it. So they're going to put Jesus on trial, and he's not even going to be there to defend himself. And so let's read this together. We're going to kind of go quickly because it's a beautiful story. It's awesome. There's entertainment stuff. You will laugh. You will cry. Buckle your seatbelt. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen this man, this blind man, before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, Well, then how were your eyes open? He said, Well, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, well, where is he? And he goes, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I love this. I love this because it's just so nonchalant. You know, it's like in our, in our vernacular, we'd say if we ever met somebody and it's just a casual, oh, what's your name? Oh, yeah, you're meeting in a line, you know, at a restaurant or something like that. And you don't plan on ever talking to this person ever again. You're like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And then somebody says, well, who, you know, who are you talking to? Oh, I don't know, some dude named Mike or something. It's just like, yeah, yeah whatever. And that's like how what's going on with it. I just some dude, I don't know, dude named Jesus, whatever. <laughs> and notice that the man has no idea where Jesus went. I have no idea who he is. I don't know where he's at. I don't know nothing about him. Hmm. Verse 13. See, this is weird. And so the neighbors are thinking to themselves, we got to do something about this. And so against the man's will, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been born blind. Now, here's this, verse 14. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh-oh. Jesus is working on the Sabbath, and now he's standing in front of the Pharisees who don't take kindly to that kind of stuff. So you know this is probably not going to go well. So then a, a debate unfolds, verse 15. The Pharisees asked the man how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I wash and I see you can see the exasperation. Like, dude, I got to tell the story again. Jeez, come on. All right. So, yeah, he anointed me. I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. See, they're debating about who Jesus is. Could Jesus possibly be like, you know, 
have the favor of God upon him? No, of course not. The man does healings on the Sabbath. <sighs> Verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. I don't know. <laughs> I guess he's a prophet. It's kind of funny that these religious leaders who know so much now are sitting here kind of going, we have no idea what's going on. What do you think, dude? <laughs> I don't know. All right. So they decide that, you know what, that's not a satisfactory uh, answer. And so the Pharisees decided to call for the man's parents. Because they're thinking to themselves, wait a minute, th if this is a bona fide, real, legit miracle, then, huh. But, oh, what if it isn't? We could ask his parents, and maybe they'll speak honestly and let us know that he's really not born blind. <laughs> Verse 18. So the Jews who did not believe that Jesus had been born, or that the man had been born blind, and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked him, is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. And nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. It's good parenting right there. <laughs> They're like, look, I don't want to get in trouble here. You better ask him. So they do that exact thing. The Pharisees bring him in now for the second round of questions. And you can tell that this man has just had it up to here. He's like, dude, I'm done with this. These folks. Look at this in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. <laughs> I guess you don't see it. But what happens is they call the man in and they basically say this. We want to hear from you again, but we want to make sure that what you say this time is exactly what we want you to say. So, so when you come this time and we're going to ask you what happened, can you please just confirm what we already know to be true? It would be easier that way. Save us a whole lot of time. Do you see what's happening? They're just, they don't want truth. They don't want actual investigation. They already made up their mind. Jesus is a sinner. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. Just confirm our presuppositions for us and we'll be on our way. But look at this in verse 25. The man and the Pharisees begin to exchange verbal arguments. He answered, well, whether he is a sinner, I, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. <laughs> I love that. Bro, I couldn't see, now I can. <laughs> so they answer and reply, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've already, I've already told you, <laughs> and you wouldn't listen. And then what they do is exchange verbal insults. Oh, I love it. Look at what he does. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? <laughs> oh, dude. They're... No way. They are not having this. Look at how they, they revile him, which is a churchy way of saying they got all kind of hot and bothered. And they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. <laughs> so the man answered, whoa, 
this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. You know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, then God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opens the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Good argument. And of course, they reply, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Instead, they say, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Now, I hope you saw that. What was the question that the disciples asked Jesus about this blind man? Was he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus said, neither. And what's the Pharisees' conclusion? You're a sinner. And what's amazing is you have this contrast between Jesus' perspective on reality and those who don't believe in Jesus, their perspective on reality. And the two are not the same. Do you see it? When you contrast Jesus' assessment with the Pharisees' assessment, one of the most beautiful truths I see is this. Our physical state, our suffering, our calamities, our brokenness, our heartaches, our sins, with Christ, they are not the last word on the issue. Jesus has the last word. Jesus has the prerogative, the sovereignty, and the control to do whatever it is he wants to do with anything. So with Christ, should you be afflicted with physical calamities and sufferings, and should you, by necessity, bear the consequences for your own sin? Do not be overwhelmed or overcome by those things because God can and often does use those as opportunities to display his glory. And in displaying his glory in these difficult situations, God is giving us a foretaste and an insight into his abundant love and lavish grace that he has for sinners. So there may be times where the diagnosis is cancer and it's not a good diagnosis. You have mere months to live. You are not afflicted with cancer because you lacked faith. But we are encouraged to pray our guts out for God is both willing and able to heal. But if he should not, he is faithful to make sure that he is glorified. And for those who are Christians, we can face our suffering with joy because we know even though this body give out, I'm getting a new one. And even though I should die because Jesus rose, yet shall I live. And so we don't waste our suffering. But we know that under the good hand of God, he will see us through. Because God desires to display his glory, his infinite worth. And that's exactly what he wanted to do here. And the end of verse 34 is that they cast the man out. They kick him out of the synagogue. And then look at this in verse 35. Such a tender moment we're about to see with Jesus. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, do you believe in the Messiah? And Jesus is really asking, do you believe in me? 
But if you notice, the man doesn't know who Jesus is. He says this in verse 36. He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Just think about this for a second. The man got healed of his physical blindness and never even asked for it. And not only that, but the man got his physical blindness healed not because of his faith in Jesus at all. He didn't even know who Jesus was. What? Shh, tell me who he is and I'll believe. Who is he? Verse 37, so Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. Can you imagine that moment? I would love to believe in the Messiah. I just don't know who he is. Could you tell me who he is? And I imagine Jesus with a sparkle in his eye and a smile on his face. <laughs> it's me. It's you. It's, it's you. Verse 38. I get goosebumps. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Do you see that? Until Jesus revealed himself to the man, the man remained blind. It wasn't until Jesus finally says to his blind eyes of his heart, here I am, that he was able to see Jesus for who Jesus really was. You see, that is a pattern in the New Testament. I don't have enough time to go through all the verses, but I'm going to read a couple things. I just want you to listen for a moment and listen to the pattern. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. In the same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. Or Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah. Remember that in Matthew 16, 17? And in response, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has. Or if you remember in John chapter 20, where the women come to the tomb to see Jesus because they had heard that he had been resurrected, they encounter an angel. And then Jesus is sitting there talking to them. And it says that Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15. So Jesus says to her, Woman, who are you? Why are you weeping and who are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, Mary said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take, I will take him away. And Jesus simply said to her, Mary. One word. And the voice of Jesus caused her to turn and say to him in Aramaic, Rabbanah, which means teacher. And then in Luke 24, verse 30, where the disciples, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus are talking with Jesus, but they didn't recognize him. And he was opening the scriptures to these disciples. And then he was going along his way and they invited him over for dinner. And so he eats dinner with them. Verse 30, he was at table with them. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. 
And then he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road while he opened us the scriptures? That's just a quick sampling of this is how God works. We all remain spiritually blind to Jesus until the moment that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit finally says, awaken. And when God awakens us spiritually, our spiritual eyes are opened and we get to see Jesus for who he really is. But until that moment occurs, we just remain blind in our spiritual state. I know that's what Jesus is talking about here in this interaction with this man. This is what he's demonstrating for us. How do I know that? Look at verse 39. For Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus said, I came into the world so that those who can't see will be able to see. And we say, okay, yeah, he must be talking about physical healing, that people who are blind will be able to see. If that's true, then what do you make of the second part? And he says, and those who do not see, or excuse me, those who see may become blind. Does Jesus really intend for every person who's born with, born with the ability to see that he intends to blind you physically? No. Instead, what he's saying is those who are spiritually blind will be awakened and given spiritual sight. And those who claim that they already have spiritual sight will be blinded by Jesus. How do I know that's true? Well, verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. They said to Jesus, are we also blind? If they were talking about physical blindness, the Pharisees would have never asked that question. You know if you're blind or not. Hey, can you see? No, I can't. Okay, you're blind. <laughs> they don't have to ask Jesus, are we blind? He goes, I don't know. Can you see? Yeah. All right, you're good. They're asking the question, are we also blind? Because they know that Jesus has just delved into a spiritual conversation. So Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. In other words, what Jesus is teaching here is the important lesson that those who are spiritually blind are those who can't see their need for Jesus. And those who are given spiritual sight are those who recognize their need for Jesus. In other words, if you had, as an answer to the question, if you had true spiritual sight, Pharisees, you would recognize your spiritual blindness and you would believe in me just like that blind man did. But since you say you already spiritually see and you have no need for me, you will remain blind. You will remain unable to recognize my glory. It's only in recognizing your inability to save yourself that Christ supplies your salvation. It's only when you think you don't need Jesus that Jesus says, see, you're blind. This is how the Apostle Paul teaches it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 4, the Apostle writes this. In their case, talking about those who the gospel is veiled for, they're perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And how have they been blinded? 
They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The definition of unbelief is that you cannot see spiritually the light of the gospel. You can't see it. But in verse 6, the Apostle Paul tells us what it means to be saved, what it means to have faith, what it means to be reconciled and redeemed. He says, for God, and I want you to see, brothers and sisters, I want you to see how he calls back to creation when he's talking about this new creation. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the same God who has the power to create from nothing with a whisper, the same God who made light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be born again? What it means is that God has shown a bright light in your heart and enabled you to see with the eyes of your heart that Jesus in his face is the glorious, radiance, good news, and great joy for all people. And if you don't see Jesus as glorious, and you don't see Jesus as infinitely valuable and precious, you have every reason to ask yourself the question, am I truly born again? Because those who are born again by the Spirit, they are awakened. And the light of Christ shines on them. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are brought to new life. And when that happens to you, you can see. And when you couple that with what our commission is as a church, to go into all the nations, preaching the gospel, you have to realize that the means that God has chosen to use in order to awaken people to spiritual life is the preaching of the gospel. So that when you open your mouth because you're filled with the Spirit, emboldened and empowered and courageous because of all that the Spirit has given you and you speak the words of Christ, God has promised your words will turn into my words and by my words, boom, new life will happen. And brothers and sisters, the question is, do we want to see the greater works? Do we want to see God work? Then open our mouths. Pray that God would open eyes. Plead and beg with God to save people. For unless he awakens, we will remain dead. Send us, God. Send us as a church to awaken to life those who are dead. For we are told in 2 Timothy that we have been given a spirit not of timidity, but a spirit of boldness and of power and of self-control. So I pray, God, ignite our church to be empowered with the Spirit in such a way that we see the supremacy and the beauty and the glory of Christ. And in seeing that, we would be sent to the nations, boldly opening our mouths to our neighbors and those who you have in your sovereignty surrounded us by, so that through our speaking, you would anoint the speaking and you would awaken. So God, do that for us, we ask. Use our church to do that. And we will give you the glory for the joy bestowed upon us to do the work you sent us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.